Welcome to Coin Flips and Controversies, an OrthoBullet's original series dedicated to exploring gray zone decisions in orthopedic surgery. This episode of Coin Flips and Controversies is sponsored by the International Masters Anterior Course, taking place this September in Houston, Texas. At this time, we will hand it over to the webinar faculty. We hope you enjoy the webinar. My name is Ted Manson. I'm from the University of Maryland in Baltimore, and I'm privileged tonight to be joined by uh, Joe Moscow uh, from the Carilion Clinic in Roanoke, Virginia, and Stefan Kreutzer from Innovate Orthopedics in Houston, Texas. We're here on behalf of the International Masters Anterior Hip Course, which is going to be held this year in Houston, Texas from September 28th through 30th. And in this course, uh, we're going to review uh, direct anterior hip replacement, both primary, easy direct anterior hip replacement, uh, revision, direct anterior hip replacement, conversion, direct anterior hip replacement, and current controversies. We're also going to have a section on outpatient surgery, uh, surgery centers, and how to optimize uh, your surgery center for both efficiency and uh, patient satisfaction. We're here tonight to, to go over a case with you a conversion hip replacement. And so we're gonna go through the case, we're gonna go through some of the audience polling that was done, and then we're gonna go through how we actually accomplished the case with pictures and then x-rays. So to start off, this is an 82-year-old retired accountant. She has left hip pain and stiffness two years following a cephalomedullary nail stabilization of a left intertrochanteric hip fracture. So she had the intertrochanteric hip fracture done, uh, she developed groin pain probably a year or two after that, and she was actually referred to me by a orthopedic spine surgeon who had seen her in as a second opinion. She had been scheduled by a neurosurgeon for a lumbar spine decompression, but the pain was in her groin, and so the, her primary care doctor was suspicious, so referred her to a orthopedic spine surgeon who diagnosed her with osteonecrosis. He had ordered a metal suppression MRI uh, that showed osteonecrosis of the femur, uh, which you'll see that encompassed the vast majority of the femoral head. And so on exam, you know, she has a 15 degree hip flexion contracture and a 10 degree external rotation contracture in that leg. So she has small incisions located relatively posteriorly. There's no evidence of infection. Uh, you know, in quizzing her, she didn't have any problems with wound healing around the time of the original surgery. So for instance, she wasn't given a course of oral antibiotics for wound healing difficulties. She didn't have to go back to the operating room. She had normal femoral and sciatic nerve root function and normal dorsalis and posterior tibial pulses. And she had no significant hip abductor weakness and no Trendelenburg sign. So hopefully we'll get some x-rays here. So my question's for, um, I'm going to start off with Stefan. Stefan, when you look at a post-traumatic, you know, uh, hip patient of any kind, whether it be post-traumatic osteoarthritis or osteonecrosis, what are you looking for in physical exam? What are you saying, well, this is going to be a difficult case. What's, what are your clues that you need to, you know, you need to be ready for more of a, a difficult procedure? Well, clinically, what I look for first is the growing pain or is it lateral pain? Uh, if it's lateral pain, that can be caused by the uh, screw backing out, as in this case. Now, this case clearly has avascular necrosis. And I just re recently had an interesting case, almost an identical x-ray, but no AVN. And she clearly had lateral pain, 
and all I did is exchange the screw to make that go away because she was only eight months out. So I wasn't quite happy to take out the entire hardware. But from a surgical standpoint, uh, these are probably one of my least favorite cases to do because they are always difficult, especially uh, if, if there's a lot of HO around it. <clears throat> uh, frequently, there's shortening of the neck, so it's really tight. Uh, you worry about taking the nail out to create these stress risers that then cause a greater trochanteric fracture. So if the bone is actually healed and she's not that symptomatic, I would consider staging this. But those are sort of the initial thoughts that I'm having. You also worry about breaking the femur where the distal interlock is, because if you do an anterior approach, you definitely pivot on that femur. And that can cause an issue with, uh, with a long spiral fracture, <laughs> which can then really extend the case. So those are some of my initial thoughts. Joe, are you going to stage this procedure? You're going to do it, you're going to try and, if, as long as there's no clear infection and you have no suspicion of infection, are you going to try and do everything in one procedure? You're going to stage these types of uh, procedures. Yeah, I, I like the way you sort of framed this, Ted. Um, the only thing first I would add to what Stefan said is for me would be uh, stiffness of the uh, of the hip and two, I sort of look at how much bone is at the tip of the greater trochanter, uh, how hard or how mutilating it's going to be to get that nail out. But getting back to your to your question, Ted, I would do this in a single stage. My concern about staging this, are all the stress risers. Yep, absolutely. And you know, from an infection standpoint, you know, I'm always paranoid about infection. If you ask my partners, I think they'll tell you, I think everybody's infected, but um, the, you know, typically what we do in these situations is we do a CRP and ESR and we ask about a history of wound healing problems. Did they get antibiotics? Did they have troubles with the wound originally? Are you all routinely getting aspirations in post-traumatic hip cases or, what do you think about aspirations? Have you found them to be beneficial? So if the CRP and SED rate are cold stone normal, then I'm not really uh, pushed to aspirate. But if they're uh, borderline or abnormal, then yes, I would aspirate. So a couple yeah, things. I would, I would agree with that. It's, you know, if it, if it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. But I agree with you that if there was no wound healing issue, there was no antibody given afterwards, uh, she really has mechanical symptoms, um, I'm less like, I used to aspirate everybody because I first thought that you're supposed to, but I'm, I would be less likely to aspirate it uh, in this type of presentation. Yeah, and I think that the point that you brought up about lateral uh, hip pain versus groin pain, so this is a this is an older version of this is a synthes uh, you know trochanteric femoral nail. There is a newer version of this that has a lower profile uh, lateral, I guess a lower profile lateral prominence of the screw. And so, if you do have a patient who you know has prominence over that blade laterally, this could be exchanged in the newer version of the implant and that eliminates that problem. But she was mostly groin pain, clearly has collapse on x-ray. I think most of us would probably have gone based on radiographs alone in indicating her for surgery. She has a pretty big osteonecrotic lesion in an 82-year-old. So just to go through some other imaging. Uh, so, you know, you have, you know, involvement of the osteonecrosis that involves a large portion of the femoral head. So 
we template her. So she's got significant shortening. And what I'm looking for in these cases is I'm looking for stiffness. For me, for these, particularly for these intermedullary nail, uh, previous intermedullary nail cases, I'm really looking at what's the flexion contracture. She had a pretty significant flexion contracture. What are the external rotation contractures? What kind of releases I'm gonna be, have to be doing at the time of the surgery? And that's agnostic to the approach to the hip. And so it doesn't matter what approach to the hip you're doing. You need to plan ahead for what kind of releases that you're gonna do, how much work it's gonna to be to get this hip exposed and what kind of, uh, what kind of thoughts you're gonna to have to get to the stability of the hip after you do all these extensive releases. We template off the, the right hip. So we, make, we try and make that left hip in the end look like the right hip by templating off the, the good hip. Do you, uh, Stefan, do you use a different planning software for than typical, uh, you know, these type of CAD CAM type uh, templates when you're planning these hips or using computer planning for these types of cases? Yeah, so I, I do 3D planning on everybody. Uh, so we got to pick up with CAT scan and then, uh, and it's, you know, there's very, actually not a big issue with, with kind of uh, uh, the metal in there at all. The 3D planning is actually really helpful when it's an acetabular fracture because you can see whether the screws are gonna interfere with your reaming or whether you need to take out screws. Uh, but I just, it's part of my routine, not that 2D, planning wouldn't work. Are you, in these cases where you have, you know, significant shortening of the operative side, are you getting a CT scan of the contralateral hip as well, just to sort of try and make the, the bad hip look like the good hip, or is there some other way that you allow for that? Yeah, the good thing about the program that we use with, uh, with OPS is that we get a full CT scan of both extremities, so we know exactly what the delta is and leg length from the right to the gotcha. left based on the CT, and that's kind of nice. It also gives you how much difference in offset there is. So if you do happen to use computer navigation, you you can be fairly accurate in reconstructing your leg length and offset. Cool. So moving on. So these are one of the poll questions, and so if you choose a single procedure, uh, IM implant extraction and total hip, would use symmetric components. And so on the call is Joe Moskal who has sort of been one of the standard bearer for revisiting cement uh, in uh, both primary and, you know, in some cases, conversion and revision hip replacement in the United States. There is an article attached uh, to this OrthoVolts presentation that he wrote with Paul Kanuja that was part of the longitudinal assessment for the, for the ABOS. Uh, that's an excellent article that goes over the argument for using cement more for uh, femoral fixation and how to do it. So Joe, I think that it's fair, I don't wanna put words in your mouth, but it's fair to say that if you were doing a primary hip replacement in an 82 year old woman with this bone quality, you'd use cement. Would you use cement in this patient? And why or why not? I would not. Uh, I, 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 although I cement about a third of my primary total hips, um, this is one that I would not. So, you know, you know, I've got six uh, areas where I prudently choose not to cement if they're elderly. So if I'm doing a revision total hip, then I, I wouldn't cement it. Uh, if I'm converting previous hardware uh, where there are cortical defects uh, and I don't think I can pressurize the cement, 
I would not. If I'm taking an intramedullary device out, uh, such as this one, uh, which sometimes has a neocortex, um, and uh, you know, by the time you take the neocortex out, there's very little cancellous bone to get, you know, proper cementation and pressurization. And although you can say that, you know, some of the uh, cemented stems are wider than some of the IM nails, you still have to ream the femur to insert the IM nail. So in the process of reaming the femur uh, to put your IM device in, you're removing cancellous bone. And so there's the cemented stem that I choose to use is sort of the impaction broaching type that has the uh, polished tapered collar stems um, that uh, have a good track record. So that's what I would use. So I really rely on that cancellous bone. Um, so, then, so then I guess the, the other point, unless you believe the French paradox, that's another situation, but I'm a big ad. For me, what works is a, is a cemented, polished, tapered collar stem. And this is not the ideal bone bed for that. The other places I, I would not cement is if you have a proximal femoral deformity, somebody with a previous fracture or malunion, somebody with um, cox, severe coxovalgal deformity, previous fracture, um, an area where you have to decouple the anaversion, the metaphysis, the diaphysis, where you want to use a certain type of stem that changes that. Cemented or monolithic stems don't allow you to do that. If I have to do a femoral shortening osteotomy for a DDH, uh, I wouldn't cement those. And the other area that I would not cement is when I'm doing bilateral total hips. So an elderly patient uh, is usually not indication, but we should only go by age. Uh, age, for the most part, is a surrogate for bone quality. Um, that being said, most uh, patients over you know, 70, 75, especially females, have osteoporotic bone, probably more than you wanted to hear. Let's drill that down into that a little bit further. And so, so you talked about the cancellous bone and cement. And so somebody who's had a previous hip replacement, so you're doing a revision hip replacement, or somebody's had a femoral nail where it may or may not have been reamed. And granted, many of these rods that when they're placed, put in, they're not reamed. But what's the difference in between that and a primary hip replacement? Well, I, I think depending on the type of stem you want to cement, it really impacts the native host bone quality of the cancellous bone. And so if there's not a lot of cancellous bone, then you're going to uh, compromise the survivorship of that stem. Uh, plus you're gonna have to use a longer uh, cemented stem to bypass uh, that most distal screw where that stress riser is. Unless you wanna do impaction grafting technique, uh, but I, I, I treat these Bone quality is that as I would treat a revision of femur. Yeah, so I, I've learned most of what I know about cementing from you. And so it, what, it, what I, I think is, you know, what I take away from it is that if you need the cancellous bone for the grout 
to gain fixation. And if you don't have the cancellous bone, there is nowhere for the grout to gain fixation, right? So once you remove that cancellous bone, it cementless fixation may be a better option for you is, is my takeaway. I think cementing into this femur is doable, uh, but the devil's in the detail. And, and, and so you may need to do a little bit of impaction grafting, in my opinion. You know, I always yeah. say there's more than one way to skin a cat. So um, that's what well, I You know, you, you do have a femoral head that you could ground up to do at least some impaction grafting if you wanted to. But um, I agree with everything you said. I would not cement this either. Also that hole in, in the disc elastic, if you pressurize it and you don't have cancellous bone to pressurize into it, it's like a shotgun and it just exudes out of the hole. There are tricks. You could put your thumb there. You could put a little bone wax. Some people, uh, you know, talk about uh, just leaving the backing the screw out so the threads are only in in the most lateral cortex. Once the cement hardens, take the screws out. It in my hands, it's just simpler, quicker, and reproducible to do this uh, cementless. Stefan, what percentage of primary hip replacements are you cementing in your practice, would you say? Back down to zero. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I started using a collar stem and that sort of eliminated my need for a cemented stem. So we're going to go to the results uh, for the OrthoBullets online poll. And so it looks like about 39% uh, would not cement either component. About 40% would cement the femur, ostensibly with a longer implant, probably to bypass that distal screw. And we had about 13% that would cement both the femur and the acetabulum. And if you look down at the, the bottom of the poll, those are three articles. Uh, one of them is revisiting cemented femoral fixation and hip arthroplasty, where Dr. Moskow was an author. Uh, so we are hopefully going to move on here. Uh, if so, say you didn't want to use cement, and so you wanted to, you know, use press fit fixation, uh, which is you know normally my go-to for the majority of hip replacements. Although due to uh, Joe's influence, I do cement some extremely osteoporotic older patients, and I do a fair amount of oncology, and so I do cement patients that have metastatic cancer, uh, but what kind of press fit fixation would you use? Would you use metaphyseal, diaphyseal, uh, or some other implant? Uh, so Stefan, what would be your fixation choice, uh, your stem choice if you were using cementless fixation? Yeah, I would use the right type with a collar. Uh, and there are several in the market that have fairly aggressive brooches. Uh, like the, the polar from Smith and Nephew, so that I can um, build the bone to the implant. So that's what I would use. So with that implant, if I understand it correctly, it's a metaphyseal fixation stem that has a longer diaphyseal portion to bypass distal screw holes and that type of thing. Is that a fair assessment of it? That would be the hope, yes. Joe? Uh, would you use that same similar type of implant or would you use diaphyseal fixation or a proximally modular stem like the SROM? What would you use? 
So if you asked me this question 20 years ago, I, I would probably use the uh, SROM. If you asked me, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I, I might use the stem that Stefan or design that Stefan used or that you used. But in 2023, I would use a fluted cone, uh, monolithic Wagner type of stem. Um, uh, I, I I don't think this is one where I would need a, a revision a um, modular uh, design since everything's intact. Gotcha. And you'd be using probably the shortest distal fluted modular stem available for that, and the non-bowed version of that is that correct? You're just trying to get past that screw hole and gain a little bit of extra distal fixation. Yes, and I, if I said modular, I meant to say meant to say monolithic. Oh, okay. This, this, this right. is one I would not use a. Uh, I would try not to use a modular one. I would use a monolithic one piece. Uh, okay. So it's not particularly long, but it is it is monolithic, and you can dial the version to whatever you want. One hundred percent. Yeah, so as you'll see, that's not what we used here in this upcoming case, but I think those are excellent stems to use. You know, the nice thing about that is, is that you have a lot of sclerotic bone tracks in these cases. And when you have an all reaming system like you do for an SROB or for a fluted tapered modular or monolithic uh, fluted taper stem, you know, the reaming seems to be very efficient as opposed to broaching. And, you know, we'll show you what we did in this upcoming case, but, the, you know, you might give you, the modularity uh, and the, the ability to dial in your version and the reaming are very powerful when you're doing these conversion hip cases where you can end up with some pretty strange, you know, contractures and deformities. Yeah, and I, so, I like it, Ted, because you can decouple the, the uh, version of the proximal femur as you feel if, if you have any question with regards to stability. Yep. As you can see, we're split about a third and a third and a third for people that wouldn't choose a single procedure, um, you know, a single stage uh, versus metaphyseal and then diaphyseal uh, in the poll that was done. And I would hasten to say that all of these uh, answers all have strong literature supported. So whatever you're comfortable, use that. Whatever works well for you, use that. Yep. All right, so a little bit controversial if you choose total hip replacement, which I think that most of us would uh, for an active 82-year-old woman, what bearing articulation would you use? And so I'm gonna sort of you know ask one question, would anybody, uh, Joe or Stefan, so we'll go with, uh, you know, Stefan first, would you use a dual mobility in this case? Um, my threshold would be very low using a dual mobility. So meaning, yes, I would most likely, especially if she's got some spine issues, she's 82, it's going to be a long operation. The abductors are probably chewed up by the time I'm done with this. Would it be a monoblock dual mobility where you have a single piece acetabular component? Um, or would it be a modular dual mobility where you have a titanium acetabular component then cobalt chrome uh, dual mobility liner? Historically in these cases, the bone quality and the acetabular is pretty weak. 
because um, they don't have arthritis and they haven't been weight bearing for a while. And so I would like to have the preference of putting in screws if I need to. So I would okay. use a modular. Joe, uh, what would be your what would be your bearing couple here? Uh, I would not do do mobility. Uh, I would do uh, since I'm doing press fit, I would do a, a cement on poly. Um, I, I think that if if I had concerns, uh, I, I would put a shell that if I was wrong, I can convert to a do mobility. Um, and if I still had if I still was iffy if the spine patient was stuck standing, uh, instrumented to the ilium, uh, I might um, maybe go to a 40 millimeter head. I've done that twice in, in my career, um, but I would not go to do mobility. If you go to do mobility, you're gonna decrease the offset. And I think what I remember from these x-rays, you, you wanna increase her offset. Yeah. You certainly do based on the templating. And so, you know, I've been reticent to use dual mobility components. Um, if we do use a dual mobility component, we tend to use the monoblock component uh, to eliminate that titanium to cobalt chrome articulation. With these types of things, if you're doing this through an anterior approach, we haven't found the use of dual mobility to be necessary. Uh, we will sometimes upsize the head and use a ceramic on poly articulation. Uh, but going to the results of the poll, if I remember correctly, the um, you know metal on polyethylene was the you know was the was the hands down favorite of the poll uh, with ceramic on polyethylene to follow and then dual mobility. So my concerns with metal on polyethylene now is that. You know, there's been a fair incidence of trunnionosis and the ceramic uh, heads at this point in time for most hospital systems in the United States, I, I don't think are, are a huge uh, uptick in cost. And so I typically use ceramic heads for all of my procedures. Is that, Joe, is that what you're doing for well, your cases? I will jump to the defense of, of those in the audience who did metal on poly. Um, because you know the literature's out there, but if I'm cementing, if I'm cementing, then I use a metal head because the head is the same metal as the steps. So right. you're not you're not you don't have metal mismatching. So if if forty percent of the previous question showed that folks would cement the femur. Uh, I wonder how many of those um, are the same ones who use metal on poly, because if I'm cementing my hips, I do metal on poly. If I'm so if I understand it correctly, if you're using a Exeter stem, that's a stainless steel stem, and you can use a stainless steel head. If you're using a, you know, a typical cobalt chrome cemented stem, then you can use, of course, a cobalt chrome head with right, that so, in it, not right, a stainless so, metal. Gotcha. Yeah, so I, I don't want to mention names, but I, I do use the Exeter, but when I do cementless with a titanium stem, I'll use a ceramic head all the time for the, for the reasons you just stated. Stefan, uh, maybe not an 82 year old, but are you using any ceramic on ceramic bearings? I do use quite a bit of ceramic on ceramic, uh, not an 82 year old, you're correct. Uh, anybody 50 or younger, 
and uh, selective between 50 and 60 if they're very active and if they would like to, I mean, if they bring it up themselves, uh, then I'll use ceramic on ceramic. If you're using a titanium stem, would you use a cobalt chrome head in this day and age? Uh, I try not to. There is uh, one size in yeah. the system that I use that only comes in cobalt chrome. That's the minus eight. Yeah. And so it's a teeter-totter between increasing the leg length and offset versus using that minus eight. You know, the really small female with a size one or two implant, sometimes you got to use that minus eight. So I use that rarely, but I'm okay with it. And so when you're doing these types of procedures, what technology would you use to optimize the position of the components? And so, uh, Stefan, you would use uh, what technology to optimize the position of the components? I think I know the answer to this, but. Yeah, so I, you know, I use navigation on everybody. Um, I would try to do this through an anterior approach. Um, and I would have fluoroscopy available. Although with hardware removal, I'm no longer uh, willing to compromise taking out the hardware by making small incisions. So I'll make big enough incisions to see the screw, put the screw thing in and take it out before I start mutzing around here with a fluoroscope to try to do it percutaneously. Joe, are you using fluoro or navigation or both, or what are you using in your OR? I use both, Ted. I've been intrigued with navigation since 2003, 2006, but Really, fluoro is my workhorse um, yeah. to do that. And th that's all I think I would need for this case. And, and you know, I am similar coming from a trauma background. I, I use a lot of fluoro for these type of, uh, well, I use fluoro for every hip replacement basically is my, you know, assistance for you know, making sure the components in the correct position. To move on to the case, can you all see that uh, clearly there? And so basically with the patient on the operating room table, you know, we've selected an anterior approach. I've done these types of procedures through every, you know, approach that's been described, the Harding, the Watson-Jones, posterior approach, and then the direct anterior approach. And for me, the direct anterior approach is really my favorite way of doing these types of cases because the stability in my hands is much higher with an anterior approach my ability to optimize the position of the acetabular component is much higher. And in addition, I'm able to fine tune the leg lengths. So some caveats though, she's got some previous incisions. The previous incisions are fairly posterior. You've got the anterior superior iliac spine marked out there. And when she's laying on the table, you know, I don't know whether you can see that or not, but she's got a pretty significant hip flexor contracture and an external rotation contractures, pretty disabled. So that's her, position preoperatively. Uh, basically, my technique is to do these supine direct anterior hip replacement on a regular operating room table. The previous incisions for the cephalomedullary nail are relatively posterior, so I don't usually do this, but I'm just going to take a rolled blanket bump and put it underneath her ipsilateral hip for this particular procedure. And I think maybe you can get a glimpse there of how short she is on the left side relative to the right side you know, in that sort of serendipitous view there. And so I placed that rolled bank of bump underneath her ipsilateral hip temporarily during the procedure just to take the nail out. Then we're gonna prep and drape the hip. And so the head is off to your right, the foot is to the left. 
You've got the previous incisions that are marked out there into the mark, the anterior superior iliac spine. And so my approach for these procedures is to take out the nail first as if I'm just taking out the nail, as if I'm not doing a total hip. And I arrived at that after many years because it never seemed like I could take out the nail without injuring the abductors unless I was doing a Harding approach to the hip. And I'm not a fan of the Harding approach to the hip because of the, you know, concomitant damage to the abductors that happens during that procedure. And it always seemed that if I was doing a posterior approach or Watson-Jones approach, you'd always be beating up the abductors a little bit more than I liked. And so the, you know, my go-to now is to take out the nail prior to doing the hip replacement through the previous incisions that it was put in through. So, you know, here we are, we've got fluoroscopic control where we've made a proximal incision right where the previous nail incision was. And we're using a 3.2 millimeter guide wire from the implant specific nail removal set. And that's very important. You need to get the nail removal set uh, for the implant that you're taking out. And we're just putting that guide wire percutaneously down to the mouth of the nail. And we do that under fluoroscopic control and AP and lateral images so that the guide wire is in the top of the nail. In most of these cases, there's, there's bone that's incarcerating these implants. And it typically, especially around the greater trochanter, the abductors that were previously there turn to stone and it occludes the mouth of the nail. And so it makes it a little bit more difficult to remove the nail. And so I put that guide wire down to the tip of the nail under fluoroscopic control. And then over that guide wire, I ream down to it using the starting, you know, reamers that are made for putting the nail in. And that, you know, I think does the least damage to the abductors and to the surrounding trochanter uh, when you're taking out these nails. It's very controlled. And so you ream down to the mouth of the nail, and then you uh, basically you back out uh, the the screw or that holds that you know blade in place. And you can see that I'm gonna to have to take out the nail through that proximal incision. And I'm also gonna to have to take out the, the distal interlocking screw. And what I've done is I've just outlined an anterior approach to the hip there that incorporates all those incisions. So it's a, it's a longer incision than we typically make, but it doesn't beat up the skin. It makes for you know, very easy and, and reliable skin healing after these procedures. So I've backed out the, the blade gate that holds that blade in place. And then I've extended the, you know, I've made a distal, you know, incision there to take out the blade itself. I take out that blade and then proceed to, uh, you know, use, uh, take out the distal locking bolt, which is also through the distal aspect of that incision. And then I thread that conical extractor, which is gonna extract the nail percutaneously, also under fluoroscopic control into the top of the nail. And it's very easy because you've reamed out all the occluding bone that's typically present in these cases. And then using the implant specific extraction equipment, you take that implant out and the nail comes out. And then you, you're, you're ready to start your anterior hip replacement uh, and you go ahead and use your direct anterior approach to the hip, which is remote from that nail incision. And so I'm making a direct anterior approach to the hip, incising through the mid portion of the tensor fasciolata sheath there uh, to get access to the uh, implants. And so you get um, you know, great exposure of the anterior femur. You do have to do more, going back to that 
previous picture, you do have to do more releases in these cases, no matter what approach you do it, uh, because there's significant contractures in heterotopic bone that's present. And so you do have to do more releases. And the more releases that you do in any hip replacement, the more prone the patient is to instability. And so that's the advantage of doing this through a direct anterior hip approach is that it's a very stable approach to the hip. And so, although it's more work to do all this, you end up with a very stable hip and you're able to you know, use fluoroscopy uh, during the procedure to guide your acetabular component placement. You're able to directly compare the leg lengths because you're looking directly at them to recreate the leg length and offset. And it's a very nice way I think of doing this approach. In this procedure, what I did use is what uh, Stefan was talking about. This is a metaphyseal fixation stem, but which does extend distally past that distal screw hole so that you don't create a stress riser around that distal screw hole. It's very easy to insert this this particular system, which is a, a DePew system, comes with both compaction broaching and then also tooth revision style broaching systems. Anytime I'm putting in a stem, I use the tooth style system, system, but you can use either one. It does have a collar and the collar limits post-operative periprosthetic fracture. And one of the articles that you, is attached to this presentation details how uh, we've investigated that in the lab adding a collar to a hip stem increases the torque to failure by 60% with this particular design. And so uh, we all agree that there is a problem of periprosthetic hip fractures in the United States. You can address those with cemented fixation or with collared fixation or with a prophylactic circlage cable, but you have to address that there is a problem that we need to, that we need to solve. And so I think I have her you know, post-operative views here, but you're very, it, it presents a very easy way to, um, you know, to optimize your leg legs and offset. We've used, a, we've used a standard ceramic on polyethylene bearing here, despite the fact that she has some lumbo-pelvic stiffness, as you can see with that previous spine fusion up above. Uh, Joe and Stefan, any, you know, comments? Would you do things differently? Uh, what do you, you know, what, what do you typically do for these types of cases? Yeah, so I can share a case that I did very similar to this. Um, I did it in the surgery center, which is not a smart idea. Oh. But, um, and it was early on in our, in our career at the surgery center, but the nail broke and it broke where the big screw goes through the nail. Yeah. And I don't know if it was previously broken or if, we, if I broke it during surgery, I think it was previously already cracked. And so what I would encourage everyone to do, which I don't know if you did that or not, is drape out the knee. Because the only way we were able to get that thing out is open up a knee set, open up the knee, and go through the knee, and take the intermedulary rod from a total knee set and knock it out. Yeah. I think that's a good trick. It's bold to do that in a surgery center, but you, we've talked about this before. When you're in a surgery center, the natural concern would be what happens if you need a blood transfusion? So how do you address blood loss in a surgery center? We have cell savers. And explain to me how that works in your surgery center and the costs associated with it. It's $100. If you don't get back, it's $200 that we get back. Yeah. I have not done any conversion hip replacements in my surgery center, uh, full disclosure, but uh, we do have bipolar cautery, which is another 
which is another adjunct which can help you uh, to limit bleeding. And we're looking into the cell saver option at your, you know, basically based on your experience with it. Yeah, and so we have a, a we have a cutoff. I think anybody with a hemoglobin of less than thirteen, we use cell saver. Maybe now it's twelve and a half, but uh, it's just nice to have that in the backup. Some other things I have on backup for these type of cases is I have uh, broken screw removal sets. I have a pineapple burr. I have incoming end cutting trauma reamers in case I get into a pedestal. So that we're kind of loaded for bear. And so for me, these are hospital cases. Joe, are you doing any of these in surgery centers or are you doing most of these types of things in the hospital? Yeah, so our surgery center is not due to open till November, but I do about 75%, 70, 75% of my cases, same day discharges. So this would be 82 year old woman, which a conversion yep. hip replacement, which from your hospital, would she yes. go home the same day? Yep. If she wanted to, I don't make them go home the same day, but if they want to, I, I let them. The key thing is, is to tank them up. Um, the, the one, a couple of caveats or digression uh, on, on this case, the sure. other thing I would have ready is cables or yeah. wires. If, if you needed to, um, any question or your concern, just put a wire or cable around. So one, one of my colleagues um, who also does the anti-approach at our institution um, and uh, what he does in these cases, Ted, which I find intriguing, it's not what I do, but I, I think I may uh, consider it, is he'll remove the the hardware through the patient's uh, incisions that they were inserted, the small incisions, and then he would do a bikini incision. So um, it, it just, his rationale is it's, they're uh, not, co the, the incisions are not all coplanar and it allows him a, a similar access to it and not as big of an incision as you would if you were to extend it. Uh, and I think that may have merit um, uh, to it for these type of cases. Sure. The issue is if something breaks though, right? Uh, the issue if something break, breaks, uh, it makes it uh, a little bit harder to address. You really only want to do this if it's very predictable and, and you're not concerning about causing a, a fracture and then having to add another incision. So, I mean, I can't argue with his results. Uh, it's not what I do, but but uh, I find it intriguing and, and I think it does have some uh, validity to it. But I would do it the same way you did it incision-wise. When you're doing a... Um monoblock fluted stem uh it's a it's probably the same length as the stem but it's it's straight it does not have a lateral shoulder relief like this sub is that am i correct joe right are you doing additional releases uh taking the tensor fasciolata off of the ilium or doing more posterior capsular releases to get that exposure to put that straight stem in or how are you how are you getting that in step one um, is uh, before I prepare the acetabulum, 
uh, I get a feel for how much I can mobilize the femur after I've done the uh, femoral neck and remove the head. Uh, I would first go and uh, work on getting the capsule off the back. And I would take it off the back of the greater trochanter. Remember the greater trochanter, it's not just lateral, it's a posterior structure. So it's not just, you know, the issue where it breaks is if you get part of it behind the acetabulum and you try to elevate it, uh, that part of the trochanter is behind and that's where it cracks, especially in someone who has osteoporotic bone. If, if that tells me whether I'm going to have a hard time or, or not, um, the iliac wing on this patient doesn't flare out like Mickey Mouse ears. So my yeah. working uh, area to, to get down the canal is pretty large. If you look where the iliac wing ends and where the tip of the trochanter is, that's, that's your working zone. But any question, any apprehension, um, I will I will release about a centimeter to a centimeter half of the TFL off the ilium, and that just mobilizes the, the, the femur uh, up. You know, for me, I have a rule of twenty minutes. If any part of the procedure takes me more than twenty minutes, I move on to something else. Uh, yeah, I think that's good advice, particularly taking out revision hip stems and moving on to an ETO, but. We digress to different cases. You know, yeah. for this particular case, I think that many times there's heavy scarring in the location of the lesser trochanter where the pubofemoral ligament, the inferior hip capsule inserts. And so for me, you know, my learning point was that you really have to work on releasing that pubofemoral ligament around the lesser trochanter to get these cases mobilized. Because if you think about it, a lot of these cases, the lesser trochanter breaks off during the original fracture and they get heavy scarring and heavy heterotopic bone formation in that location. And so that's been you know, a learning point for me for mobilizing the femur is really working hard to get that pubofemoral ligament mobilized. And the best time to do that, Ted, uh, is when you're doing the exposure. So if yeah. you do your capsulotomy, and then whether you do a T or an H, whatever it is, but when you, you, you get to the trochanteric ridge, if you externally rotate the leg and just follow the capsule down to the lesser trochanter, uh, you can feel it all the way around. It's just a matter of just keep externally rotating and take your bovi along the capsule and it'll take you right to the lesser trochanter and you can feel it. And if it's still a tight band, you need to go further and it just becomes soft. And, um, but it's a lot easier to do that on the front end as you're going in. Yeah. yeah I think what, what I'd like to add at this point is, you know, these are wonderful tips and tricks. Um, and I want to let our audience know that if they want to have any more of these wonderful tips and tricks, uh, we are teaching an anti-hip course, the iMac, which is obviously sponsoring this, uh, this session. It's going to be September 28th, 29th and 30th, if I remember correctly. And we'd love for you to sign up. Uh, it's going to be a plethora of, of aspects of anti approach hip replacement. We're starting out with outpatient total joints and again, all the way to revision surgery and even tumor surgery. Uh, Ted always gives a crazy talk at the end on uh, what not to do and send it to Ted kind of talk. But uh, and I just wanted to put that in there, make sure that the audience knows that um, this course 
really focuses on all these little cues and pearls that you need to know in order to be a successful anterior hip surgeon. Yeah, and I'll underscore what Stefan says. The, the course, we've spent a, a great deal of time uh, on the agenda and course, and, and it sort of builds up to a crescendo where we start off with routine cases, primary cases, and then work up to complex primaries, uh, deformities, hardware, complex revisions on the femur and acetabulum. I'll just say I'd like to give a shout out uh, or make note that our faculty is from all over around the world. We have Michael Nogla from Austria. We have uh, Christoph Corten from Belgium, uh, both gentlemen, world-renowned uh, anterior approach surgeons uh, from the beginning, masters of anatomy. Um, we have uh, our um, Lifetime Achievement Award this year will go to uh, Dr. Bill Maloney from Stanford, who has spent a life and career uh, researching and uh, publishing on highly cross-linked polyethylene. In addition to which, he will uh, give a commentary on words of wisdom when adapting a new approach. We have Andy Ng from the Anderson Clinic who uh, comes with years of experience, uh, has been a posterior approach surgeon for most of his career and is now converted uh, to the anterior approach to sort of share his thoughts on the approach. We have Adolf Lombardi, um, international renowned uh, hip surgeon there. We're gonna have a fireside chat uh, at the end of, the, the end of one e uh, Thursday evening where after the meeting, uh, we're gonna have uh, all the international faculty uh, up on the stage and, and just have an open symposium with Q and A's moderated by Dr. Jose Rodriguez as well. Um, Jay Parbisi will give our keynote address on infection from the Rothman Institute. And the list goes on and on uh, with the faculty. So. Uh, would really uh, welcome anyone who is interested to please attend the meeting. If there are any questions, uh, just go to the website. Uh, and again, um, my deepest thanks to Ortho Bullets for hosting uh, this coin flip.